welcome to The World in 30 Minutes. I'm Mark Leonard, and over the holiday season, we're bringing you a special series looking at how all the things that bring us together, like trade, technology, the internet, and migration, can also tear us apart. My work has been built on a rising tide of internationalism, but in 2016, with Britain voting to leave the European Union and Donald Trump winning the White House, that tide went out and I felt shipwrecked and wrote a book about how many people like me could start to make sense of a world that hadn't lived up to the dreams that we had at the beginning of the century. Rather than eradicating connectivity's dark side with a new grand design, I argued that we need strategies for shaping and surviving our new reality. I call it the age of unpeace, therapy for internationalists. So in this series, I want to take a more therapeutic approach to international relations. I'll be talking to guests who have maybe experienced a similar journey, and together we will discuss things like, why did the globalist dream of one world go wrong? Why have the world's great powers been competing with each other rather than working together on COVID-19, climate change and global migration? Will China and America go to war? Today, I have a very special guest, Dan Dresner. He is Professor of International Politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, a non-resident senior fellow at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, a contributing editor at the Washington Post. He's written five books. He appears regularly in the media, but as well as being the biggest expert in the planet on the toddler-in-chief um, <laughs> who used to inhabit the White House, Dan is one of the, the most thoughtful and, I think, incisive commentators on the intersection between uh, geopolitics and the economy. And he's looked at that in lots of different ways, both in the academic realm, but also uh, I think has been one of the, the core shapers of the public conversation on these issues. So I'm particularly thrilled to, to be talking to you, to you today. I think I first got to know you, Dan, about 15 years ago when I was trying to understand uh, a different America that had just invaded uh, Iraq and was rethinking uh, its role in the world. And I think we've both been on a bit of a journey since then, um, as indeed has America and its, uh, and its foreign policy. So maybe we can sort of start by talking about that. In, in what way, when you look at the issues that you're looking at, the state of globalization of and of global politics in what way is it different from what you thought we would be facing when we first met 15 years ago or maybe even further back at the turn of the century i mean i think the thing that has changed the most is what i would describe as sort of uh, our collective narrative about the way the future was going to look you know it, it's very easy to mock and, and indeed it seems to be an exercise to mock uh, Francis Fukuyama's end of history argument uh, that he articulated back in 1989 initially. But I actually think that a lot of experts, particularly around the year 2000, myself included, if they didn't necessarily believe the strong version of it, they believed the weak version of it, which was that the world was, you know, in every day and every way getting a little bit better. Um, and the data, by the way, confirmed that in terms of things like reduction of extreme poverty, reduction of war and all of that. And I think there was a, a belief by a lot of uh, particularly American foreign policy thinkers that the wind was at our backs, 
um, and that there were an array of global governance structures that would not necessarily, you know, lead at that point to a perpetual peace, but you could see the the road that you could take that would get you to there. The idea that we were having a more interconnected economy, that we had international institutions like the World Trade Organization um, that were actually settling economic disputes, and that the world was growing more democratic. And that is the Kantian triad. That is the 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 logic by which you thought you weren't necessarily going to be exiting anarchy, but it would be a much kinder, gentler anarchy. And if you had to put your finger on one thing which has has led to, or one set of things which had led to to those hopes being somewhat dashed over the last couple of decades, what would you say? The one thing, oh God. Um, Is it just that these were always kind of crazy things to hope for? Or no, have- I don't think they were crazy things to hope for. I mean, it, again, in the year 2000, you know, you could have said that there was a way in which even if China, for example, didn't necessarily become democratic, you could see a China imbricated in the global economy was going to be a responsible stakeholder. But if I'm going to be honest, I actually think that the 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 thing that I think everyone missed um, and and that we're now sort of dealing with the reckoning of was that globalization was at the same time going to be a tremendous assist in terms of poverty reduction, but was also in the developed world going to lead to a massive boost in inequality. And that was the thing. And I think that's the thing that in the end probably has led to the the sort of liberal international order as we know it now being looked at in with a tarnished luster in that the, the promise of what was being offered in terms of, of an open global economy has not been completely wrong, but it's, it's had some deleterious effects that I think even its boosters weren't quite prepared for. So I think that's really what I'd like to, to go into in a bit more depth. I mean, economics at the turn of the century was seen as the sort of ultimate thing which would bring us together. There was a mm-hmm. kind of neo-Marxian idea that by creating a common economic base, we might end up with a, with a political superstructure that overlaid it. But now, increasingly, what we're seeing is states combining um, political action and economic action. They use economic tools to enhance their geopolitical power. They use geopolitics for economic gain. And you have, have made the study of these kinds of tools into into a well into a science as well as an art form. You've written a lot about of, of classic texts about sanctions, and particularly thought a lot about how how Americans, who in many ways were the for for much of the last few decades the prime beneficiaries of an open order, have also become very sanctions happy, and have mm-hmm. been weaponizing the financial system that they built around their own currency. Can you maybe talk a bit more about how that's happened? How has the US gone from being this sort of ultimate evangelist for apolitical free markets to, to being the kind of weaponizer in chief on the on the world stage? Was <laughs> that is that the wrong way of looking at it? Was it always an illusion? No, I think that's the right way of looking at it. I mean for- so I would say a few things on this. First of all, it's it's worth looking back at the past, not with uh, sort of rose-colored glasses, which is to say economic 
sanctions and economic statecraft have been part and parcel of international Back politics. Wars. Back to the Peloponnesian yes. War. The boycott of Megara was one of the triggers for the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War. And indeed, it's been a part of U.S. foreign policy uh, since the Jefferson administration, uh, since the, the 1807 Embargo Act, um, which ended in glorious failure. So uh, setting the pattern for a lot of sanctioning behavior. What I think has changed in in this century is a couple of things. The first is, is that traditionally economic sanctions used to be done through trade. You would impose a trade embargo, whether a comprehensive one or a restrictive one, um, as a way of putting pressure on a target economy or a target entity. The problem when you impose trade sanctions is that you're, you're outlawing what would otherwise be ordinary market activity, which means you're automatically creating an incentive for black markets and for corruption and what have you. And so unsurprisingly, trade sanctions don't have a great track record of success. They work under certain specific circumstances, um, as I talked about in the sanctions paradox. But generally speaking, the private sector is working against you with those things. What happened you know, after the end of the Cold War was that the dollar became such a central part of global capital markets, and the entire world became connected to each other, not by trading in their own currencies, but by trading in the dollar, which meant that any sort of decent financial exchange would have to pass through a U.S. correspondent banking account. And this meant that the U.S. was at the center, was the sort of central node of a whole vast array of international economic transactions. And what the U.S. and what the Treasury Department in particular realized was that if it was able to put pressure on those financial exchanges, that was an even more potent lever in terms of economic coercion. Because whereas in the case of trade, private sector actors would be perfectly happy to try to to work around the sanctions, the financial sector operates a lot on reputation. And large-scale financial institutions, large banks, do not like getting caught evading sanctions. And when they have gotten caught evading sanctions, they have often paid fines in the billions of dollars. And so when you impose financial sanctions on an actor, the private sector actually amplifies the effect um, in that a lot of private sector actors engage in what is called de-risking behavior uh, to avoid even things that might actually not violate the sanctions, but come close. And so they don't want to deal with that at all. And so they ask in a very, act in a very risk-averse manner. And so what this means is that the U.S. discovered uh, an instrument of economic statecraft that packs a much greater wallet. Um, and furthermore, and this is the other important element of this, when you impose trade sanctions on another country, you kind of have to get multilateral support. Um, because if you don't get a broad-based coalition, the targeted actor inevitably will just look for a black knight, um, some other country that will offer to step in and provide the, the omitted economic exchange. And we saw this during the Cold War all the time. If the United States sanctioned a, a, a country, the Soviet Union would step in and offer aid. If the Soviet Union did the same thing to one of its allies, the United States would step in and do the same. After the end of the Cold War, there were no other Black Knights. There were no Black Knights, period. There was no other country with the the means to be able to block what the U.S. was doing. And what that meant was that the U.S. could impose unilateral sanctions and not even worry necessarily about what its allies thought. And you saw that sort of develop over the between 2000 and, and where we are now, where the U.S. would start, you know, trying to work in a multilateral fashion. But increasingly, what it began to realize was that it didn't need anyone else's help. And I think the, the the hypothesis of this was the Trump administration's exit from the JCPOA and the reimposition of sanctions against Iran, which the Europeans 
bitterly opposed, and by Europeans, I do include the British on this. Nonetheless, because the US was able to, to get SWIFT to delist Iranian actors, the Europeans had no choice. They essentially had to go along. They did try to create a, a substitute mechanism called Instex, but it didn't do all that much. And so the US began to realize that it had untrammeled amounts of financial power and then began to use it in a somewhat undisciplined way. And this is in some ways the, the problem we get to when we talk about the current state of the order, which is the idea that the US was a benevolent hegemon was a story that Americans like to tell itself, but it was also a story that it told to others. And I think a story that was by and large, not universally, but but mostly accepted by at least its allies and by neutral parties. And what has changed over the last 15 to 20 years is that the U.S. now seems unable to act in a self-disciplined way. The U.S. seems unable to constrain its power as a way to try to, or to constrain its ability to coerce as a way to try to achieve, you know, some sort of cooperative outcome. And I think as a result, this has, this has led the likes of not just, you know, Russia or China or Iran to react against uh, the U.S.-led liberal international order. It's also sparked concern among its allies about whether or not the U.S. has the ability to credibly commit going forward. So this is where I think we we get to the really therapeutic part of the podcast, which is um, <laughs> to work out what we can do about it. And I got this five-step program for the age of unpeace based around the idea of disarming connectivity. And <laughs> If you're uh, happy to to go along for the ride, I'd, I'd really like to go for it together. The first step of Just all... let me lie down on the couch. Hold on. <laughs> all right, go ahead. Very good. Anyway, the first step, as you know, of all therapeutic programs is facing up to the, the problem. To what extent do you think that the US has faced up to the problem? What changes do you see between the Trump administration and the Biden administration when it comes to economic statecraft? Do you think that the Biden administration's sanctions review is going to have an impact on policy and is going to take into account some of the things you've just been saying about the problem? Yeah, there's a mixed picture here. I think if you take a look at what the Biden administration did with the sanctions review, the very fact that it did that in the first place is, as you would say, if the first step to, to you know solving a problem is acknowledging that you have one, at least the Biden administration's sanctions review suggests, hey, there's a problem. And, you know, I wrote something in Foreign Affairs in the fall talking about the United States of sanctions that were, were hooked on this the way you'd be hooked on fast food. The reaction I got to that suggests there is at least an awareness that there is a serious problem. OK, so that we've achieved that. But but the problem is that I'm not sure this has necessarily led to any changes in behavior. The Biden administration sanction review was very vague in terms of what would be done to prevent sanctions abuse. And I think the example that, that comes to mind immediately is what's going on in Afghanistan right now, um, which is a looming humanitarian catastrophe, uh, if you believe the reports from both the United Nations and the International Crisis Group. And part of the problem there is that the United States and many of its allies does not recognize the Taliban, that's, which is one thing. But the other thing it means is that essentially it's extremely difficult for any humanitarian aid to get into the country. And the result is one in which the Taliban's going to suffer a little bit, but Afghanistan's population is going to suffer a lot. And this seems like a, a perfect example where sanctions are a tool that you know is hurting the wrong people um, and is not going to yield necessarily to any results. But the political optics of this for the Biden administration are extremely difficult because if the Biden administration somehow 
modulates the sanctions or moderates the sanctions, they will be vulnerable to accusations by hawks that they are now cooperating with the Taliban. And that's a story that they obviously, and that's a narrative that they don't want. But if you think about, if we just try and nail this problem down a bit more, though, problem is sanctions abuse. And that can, base, I suppose, have three kind of negative effects. One is, is that it hurts the wrong people, as you've been yeah. talking about. Secondly, I suppose that it becomes self-defeating because people hedge. And uh, when allies start to hedge as well as, as hostile countries, then that could precipitate, I suppose, the toppling of the dollar as, as this kind of hegemonic currency which is the basis on which the sanctions tool is uh, has been built mm-hmm. maybe a third kind of negative scenario is is that you just get us as the world becomes more multipolar that other countries adopt similar tactics and that you could see um the chinese as they are against lithuania at the moment yeah uh, adopting secondary sanctions of their own and that this could further lead to the erosion of the of kind of open orders is that right so no, I think that's all correct. I, 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 there's one other thing, which is essentially, particularly China's rise means there's now a black knight. So you're you're correct, absolutely. And, and by the way, I want to stress here, it's not just the United States that is abusing economic sanctions. Russia has uh, imposed a variety of economically coercive measures, most of which have not necessarily worked terribly well, but have caused a lot of pain. China has similarly done this. What is interesting in particular with China is that they are now also starting to reach out to countries that have been sanctioned by the United States or that are under threat of sanctions in the United States or that are offering aid in return for things like not recognizing Taiwan. And so even countries that you would ordinarily think are, are completely within the U.S. orbit, like in Central America, you're now starting to see their behavior switch because China as a black knight can essentially shield them from U.S. economic pressure. So that's something else that's going on. There's the, Because China is a genuine black knight, the ability of the U.S. to really exact or engage in effective economic coercion has been diluted even further. And I think U.S. expectations haven't quite caught up with that in terms of the way the policymakers think. But yes, you're also right that you know there are threats to the dollar uh, in terms of the rise of digital currencies. Uh, the rise of crypto. In, in some ways, cryptocurrencies, I don't think are going to supplant the dollar in any way whatsoever. But what cryptocurrencies do a really good job of is evading financial sanctions. And so this is one way in which you might see that tool uh, become that much less effective over time. There is one additional problem with with US addiction to sanctions, which is to be fair, I think if it was up to the Biden administration or if it was up to the executive branch, you might see somewhat more modulated um, and moderated economic sanctions. But a big problem in the United States is that a lot of, of U.S. sanctions policy is dictated by Congress because Congress loves sanctions. Sanctions are the happy medium between sort of symbolic congressional revolu- resolutions and then, of course, actual declarations of war, which Congress wants nothing to do with. So they can pass laws enacting sanctions and say they've acted in a tough manner and in a really coercive manner which makes it extremely difficult to lift them. And this actually undercuts the utility of economic statecraft, because if you're actually going to sanction another country, you have to credibly commit in two ways. First, you have to tell the target, unless you change your behavior, we're going to impose sanctions. But you also have to tell that target, and if you change your behavior, we will lift the sanctions. And what you're increasingly seeing is countries like Iran not believing the second part, much less the first part. Absolutely. Well, I think this leads us on to, to the second step, which is um, I call it establishing healthy boundaries, because I think paradoxically, the best way to unite the world is to create enough distance to make 
people and countries feel like they're safe and that they're in control and that therefore the dividing line in the world shouldn't be between open and closed societies, but rather between unmanaged and managed togetherness on everything from trade and migration to technology, cultural change. What does that look like when it comes to um, to the global economy and the, the idea of sanctions? Are there ways that we can think about managing it so that you can have bounded competition rather than these things getting so out of control that they lead to to a return of autarky and a, and a loss of all of the big advantages that, that we've accrued as a result of, of, uh, of global supply chains and open financial markets? I think so. If I was going to advise, you know, the, the Western states, I would say you need to take a good hard look at not reviving, but essentially creating a structure very similar to what COCOM was. So COCOM was short for Coordinating Committee. It was an informal organization that existed during the Cold War uh, in which NATO members, but also Japan, Sweden, um, a few other countries, basically got together and decided which goods would not be traded with the Soviet Union because in trading with them, it would give them a strategic advantage that the, the good would be able to ha- would have military applications and so on and so forth. Now, it's easy to sort of say, well, the Cold War turned out really well and COCOM seemed to work, so we should just borrow from that. COCOM was a contentious affair, and, and I, I don't want to suggest that it was all smooth sailing. But the advantage of that kind of multilateral body is that I think it would check the United States. Um, it would function as a credible commitment device in a way that uh, currently does not exist, and therefore force the United States, when it thinks about economic coercion uh, and when it thinks about more forms of strategic embargo, particularly with respect to great power competition with China, would actually enable um, the U.S. and its allies to get on the same page in terms of what is the proper economic relationship we want with China? Because people who talk about sort of decoupling as if all you have to do is snap your fingers and it's going to happen are living in a fool's paradise. The fact is, is that, you know, the the global economy remains extremely highly interconnected and it's going to remain extremely highly interconnected uh, for quite some time, absent a great power war. And so the question is, how do you manage what you say as sort of, you know, mild decoupling or manage, you know, global supply chains such that you can continue to carry out ordinary commerce, but there might be, you know, spheres in which you don't want to necessarily do business with China uh, because of cyber warfare, because of theft of intellectual property, because of other issues. Um, and can you do so in such a way that you actually have, you know, countries in the Pacific Rim, the United, you know, North America and Europe all on the same page? So the, that leads us to step three. I call that being realistic about what you can control. I think one of the dangers, if everything is connected and everything's being weaponized, is that all the different points of contact we have with each other become sites of systemic rivalry. You can see uh, yeah. conflict, therefore, escalating out of control in, in different areas. If you think about the, the areas that we've been talking about, you've written a huge amount about global governance and about um, the different institutions, both formal and informal, which have been used to, to, to order the world. But also, increasingly, those institutions are, are bogged down by geopolitical rivalry, are being mm-hmm. bypassed and have less purchase on, on what states are actually doing. What, what do you think we should be trying to let go and to allow other countries to do in their own way and what areas do we need to 
both maintain our own sovereignty on as uh, as states or as kind of alliances of states, but also potentially agree global rules on? So I guess I would say we have to live, you know, looking forward to try to aim for a world of what I would call good enough global governance, which is to say global governance that will actually be there in case of emergencies. And it's worth noting, for example, that when we talk about COVID, for example, you know, in terms of the global response to it, what's interesting to note is that, you know, if you look on the, on the epidemiological side, on the health aspect, it's been an utter fiasco. There's no other way to put it. Um, it's It's been, uh, there's been a, almost a complete lack of coordination. Um, the WHO was, was feckless. But it's not like governments necessarily acted all that better. And so part of this, I think, was because you had uh, an administration in the United States that was not terribly interested in engaging in, in international leadership. And also you had uh, another rising power that really did not want to have any transparency on the subject whatsoever. And so the question is, how do you reform that? But I would also point out that on the economic side, for example, Oddly enough, the the national responses to COVID were actually better than what happened in 2008. And I wrote a book about 2008 called The System Works. So I actually thought the 2008 response, while far from perfect, was much better than I think people appreciated at the time. And so that actually gives me grounds for some optimism, which is there is evidence that countries can learn from their mistakes. And you can argue that an array of countries learned their lesson from the failures of austerity, and and uh, excessive fiscal discipline that that followed the Great Recession and indeed triggered the eurozone crisis. So I am somewhat optimistic that going forward it might be possible that when we think about global health governance or climate change, that you might see some learning for how things have failed so far. And I do think that when it comes to health and when it comes to climate. These are not issues that have partial solutions or that that only part of the the, the globe will be able to to solve. It's going to require a, a more global situation, a global solution. And so I do wonder whether essentially you can see a replay of, of what often happened during the 1990s, which was if there was a failure to get global consensus on something, inevitably what would happen would be the U.S. would basically form a club uh, that attracted similar like-minded members that represented a significant fraction um, of the global economy. And that, in the end, wound up helping to write the rules. There is no, the U.S. weight here is less than it used to be. But if the U.S. attracts more allies, it is still possible to engage this. And to what extent do you think we need to have some minimum standards for behavior, you know, a kind of equivalent of of Westphalia for for the global economy or um, you know, maybe Westphalia is the wrong kind of metaphor, but some sort of norms which everyone signs up to. I think the the fundamental question over the next decade is going to be whether or not you see climate and trade linked. I think things are going in that direction. You, you're seeing, you know, the European Union do that with the climate border oh, adjustment mechanism. Border adjustment mechanism, CBAM. Yeah. CBAM. And there are ways in which I could see that becoming a, a wider application, especially as the effects of climate change become more and more obvious. But that said, I think it's going to be a contentious process, and I, I think it could lead to further disruptions as well. Okay, so we're coming up to our fourth step, which is the idea of self-care. 
Lots of <laughs> been written about the ways that other countries are hurting us and using uh, weaponizing things against uh, us. But a lot of the biggest cracks in the system, I think, have, have uh, come up at home. What do you think the the sort of most urgent lessons are for the Biden administration for other Western countries when it comes to um, rebuilding the home front? I mean. At a rhetorical level, there does seem to have been a big shift with the idea of a foreign policy for the middle class. But what does that really mean in practice? Honestly, I don't think it means much. I mean, it's worth remembering that, you know, Barack Obama started started talking about nation building beginning at home. And, and even Donald Trump in his own slightly demented way, you know, talked about American carnage due to the global economy. I actually think on this front, it has less to do with foreign economic policy and frankly, more to do with domestic institutions that can ensure credible commitment going forward. So if I was to, you know, if I could snap my fingers and say, what is the thing that we need to solve the most? In the United States, it's congressional dysfunction. It's the idea that Congress has to be a responsible foreign policy actor again. And they have by and large abdicated their responsibility in this area. And they've been doing so for decades. We're just seeing the effects of it now. And so, you know, I guess my my request would be for Congress to heal itself. As a political scientist, I, I do recognize that that's not necessarily going to happen. OK, talking of Congress, you know, obviously these are tribunes of the people. And um, uh, that brings us to our, our fifth step, which is seeking real consent. I think we know from all uh, human relationships that the single principle, which is the, the most central to any kind of legitimacy, is consent. And when it comes to international relations, the one thing that has been most conspicuously lacking when it comes to, to these ties that bind us to other uh, players is consent. There have been lots of talk about democratic deficits and about the uh, sovereignty or democracy destroying elements of, of, of global trade deals um, and other elements. I mean, at the same time, it is um, obviously incredibly difficult to get everybody to give real lasting consent. I mean, in many ways, the Brexit example for me was a huge wake up call because right. if you think about that from a political science perspective, this is about as good as you can get. You know, there was a referendum hmm. uh, before Britain went into the EU. There wasn't a single law that wasn't passed by different governments that wasn't ratified by parliaments. The level of consent to every single step was quite extraordinary compared to most um, uh, international treaties. And and uh, 52% of people felt that these things were, were, were kind of against them and voted right. to, to leave. So how do you think democracy needs to change to, to give people real consent over things like trade and, and economic policy? I mean, this is tricky. This goes back to, I think Danny Roderick talked about the governance trilemma, basically, and with the three points being hyper-globalization, global governance and actually democracy. And, and his point was you can have two of these three, but not necessarily all three. And Brexit represents the fact that there is a belief by some, misguided or not, that globalization strips them of agency, that strips them of, of, of their voice. So I think the answer is, is that you're going to have to ease back a little bit on the hyper-globalization and ease back a little bit on uh, the sort of global governance arrangements in order for people to feel like they do have some uh, responsibility. And, and as painful as this is to say, I do think in also what you're going to have to see is countries recognizing that steps taken towards deglobalization also carry costs. 
So this is where I think the UK example will be interesting to see whether Brexit actually exacts, you know, the economic costs that we're seeing um, and that was predicted back in 2016. And the question is whether this offers a cautionary tale for other countries going forward in thinking that exit is a viable option, when in fact, it's not so much exit is a viable option, I think, at this point. I think it's more like you want to make sure that you can occasionally close the door. Yeah. I mean, it's also an interesting example, um, whether the control that you get is real or whether it's simply yeah. And I think that's one of the other. But the feeling is nonetheless real. That's the problem. The pro- I mean, you're right. Like, I, I, you know, I was obviously opposed to Brexit. I think it was not a great decision. But nonetheless, if you're going to engage in democracy, you also have to deal with how that 52% felt about it and the question is can you change that narrative yeah no no it was a real sense of democracy and action for for many of the people who voted for the first time in their lives i think that's all we've got time for today but it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you dan and i hope that people will follow up on a lot of the interesting thoughts that have been raised here by looking at some of Dan's many articles and books on these topics. We will put a link up to uh, some of his publications on our website at dfr.eu slash podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do subscribe to it on whatever platform you've used to download it. And when you're there, you can also give us a positive review and we're not averse to five-star ratings either. But For now, from Dan Dresner and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye and Happy New Year as well. The researchers for this podcast mini-series are Swancha Green and Lucy Halpenthal, and the editor of this week's podcast is Chris Eichberger. 